joining me now for this podcast is the author of several fantastic football and books, Jim Keoghan. And Jim, first and foremost, I just want to extend an apology because it was around late last year um, when I was sort of sourcing guests for potential podcasts that I asked you to come on the pod. And little did I know how much of an impact my dissertation was going to have on me when I ended up getting caved in with so much sort of... Um, you know, reading and sort of writing, basically, that in terms of reading football content and whatnot, I just sort of got bogged in and just didn't really fancy much of it, which is why I think it's it's a great sort of situation to have you on now, because your most recent book, Everton Number 9, Nine Players, One Iconic Shirt, is one of those books that's really sort of recaptured um, what I love about football and, you know, more than anything, what I love about Everton. Um, it's a fantastic book. So, firstly, I mean, I guess you've probably explained this a hundred times over since the book came out. Um, what was it like delving into the archives to, to read about such great figures? Um, it was great. I think, I think what's nice, um, especially at the moment when, you know, things haven't been great at um, Everton for quite a few years, it's always nice to go back and uh, just go over our, our great times. And most of these players are covered in these books. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, they kind of, their careers coincide with great times for the club. And so it's just nice to kind of um, reacquaint yourself with the, with the fact that Everton, you know, have, have been a fantastic club. And we've had these amazing times, even if, you know, recently things haven't been that good. Yeah, definitely. And what I wanted to say is, it, it was a bit of a weird one, really, because with the book, it was almost as if pretty much these were all stories that I was told before. And it kind of set me off down a rabbit hole, as you say, is revising Everton's fantastic history, which is very unique to the club. And I, I would say, like no other, really. Um, I went down a rabbit hole of so, so, you know, the, the Everton Former Players Foundation and some of the past interviews that they've done. And I went onto their YouTube page and, you know, from years back, they've got basically what you'd call now the equivalent of podcasts, like hour-long interviews with former players. And I, I come across uh, an interview with Derek Temple, the, the man who pretty much defined our 1966 FA Cup win. Um, and he was explaining the sort of infrastructure of the squad, saying that we had a D team, a C team, a B team, reserves, and then the first team. And what I love so much about this book is my granddad played for the B team alongside Dave Hickson. Um, and he, he told me, you know, all these sorts of stories that alongside Tommy Lawton, Dave Hickson was like the finest header of a footballer that you've seen. And, and of course, he said he saw the, uh, the back end of Dixie too. So I was wondering for you, was there any sort of knowledge that you've come across that that surprised you when researching the book? Um, well, there's always stories that you kind of didn't realise, but I think the thing that I, I kind of I that kind of struck me when doing the research was um, how like how seamless everything used to be. How how the sense that you know obviously there were gaps in between them, and there were players who who kind of didn't. Uh, do the business but you know from Dean onwards there's this sense of kind of we have these fantastic number nines and just as that person's career is dipping 
in comes somebody else. And we sort of roll from like, you know, Hickson into um, Pickering, into Young, into uh, Royal, and Latchford, then Sharp, then Gray, uh, and then Ferguson. It's only really um, maybe in the last, what, 15, maybe 20 years where we haven't done that. This, this kind of long tradition of, of sourcing these fantastic players um, in that position just hasn't really happened. And we've, you know, if, if you look back, maybe since Kevin Campbell, yeah, Everton forward line's been really choppy and changing. You might get a season out of somebody and you might get maybe 12, 13 goals here and there. But that sense of having a player who can come in and just, you know, dominate for like six, seven years and give mm. you 20 goals, it's just gone, really. Devastating, really, isn't it? And from my perspective, I was born in 1998, and as you say, from Kevin Campbell onwards, it has been really hit and miss in regards to the centre forwards that we brought in. I was thinking as a sort of just a little bit of a fun question, really. When you look at this current crop of players, I've done some thinking towards this, and I think I've got quite a decent answer. If you obviously, I think Dean, hands down, is the poster boy for Everton number nine. He is and always will be. I think it's something like. 383 goals in 433 appearances, which is just ludicrous, absolutely ridiculous. If you could pick one of these number nines to go into this current squad of players, aside from Dean, who would you go for? Uh, oh, that's a hard question. I mean, they, they could all improve this team. That's the that's the kind of the really frustrating thing. There's you know, there's no as good as our forwards have you know been in the last few months. But you know, not not since the restart, but certainly since. Uh, Ferguson uh, took over as caretaker. Uh, I think every player in this list would improve uh, the Everton side. I think the one that often uh, sticks out just because he was the best, maybe not the best out and out goal scorer, but maybe the best footballer amongst that list would be uh, Alex Young. He's the one that people talk about as being probably the best Everton footballer ever. Even though his kind of goal scoring record, it's sort of it's not as good as the rest. But he, if you, I think if you put somebody that creative into this team, you know, especially when you look at our problems with you know going forward and creating chances, he would undoubtedly make it a better side. Yeah, one hundred percent. That was that was my pick as well. He seemed he seemed like a maverick, didn't he? Really, just a really unique technical footballer. Yeah, and brilliant. I know. I went back and watched the Golden Vision the other night as well as part of this little history binge that I've been on. It's a sensational piece of filmmaking. And his character is like the little snippets of the interviews that they do with him. His character, him as a person, was really intriguing. Like he really did seem to have like a, a sense of perspective uh, as an individual, didn't he? Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's it's that kind of documentary or or I mean sort of film struck documentary. It really, it's, it really captures the man who kind of, um, he's really interesting because he seemed to have like doubts and, and he, he didn't really buy into the, um, you know, the, the sense of him being the goal vision. It, it was, he was quite humble and, you know, it, it was a weird contrast. You have the fans sort of lionising him and the whole, whole piece talking about this, this wonderful, amazing player and yet you have those interviews and he just seems really, uh, not insecure, but yeah, really kind of uh, unsure of yeah. just how good he, he, he is. Yeah, he really seemed to have his his feet on the ground, so to speak. And yeah, what what kind of shocked me, as, as I said, when asking you there, what shocked you about sort of um, when you were doing your research? What shocked me is like I knew 
Catrick was always a sort of stern and authoritarian person as a manager, but I didn't realise just how much he'd impacted the, for example, Alex Young's career. Because didn't at one point he block a, block a move to, to New York as he was, as Royal yeah. was coming in. Um, for, for a manager to do that really sort of shocked me. When, when you sort of look back over these, um, these periods, obviously the very, um, you know, as you say, they are very sort of glorious in a sense, the, the 60s and the 80s. We always seem to do a sort of rebuild, don't we? As, as, um, as the sort of success of one era peters out, we always look to do a rebuild. And I don't know, obviously, with, with Catrick being a former player and with Howard, being, Howard Kendall being a former player, maybe that's something that, you know, um, the latter's learnt off, off Catrick. But what are the sorts of things that jump out most to you in terms of when you revise Everton history? What sort of intrigues you the most? Um, it's been the kind of, uh, it, it both kind of uh, surprises me and um, and it's also disappointing at the same time is the sense that Everton were once very good at doing things. So if you, if you go back to the club's foundation, I mean, of course there were mistakes and there were periods when things didn't go too well, but by and large, we were quite a forward-looking club and we invested well and we developed um, the club well. And then you get this kind of watershed moment um, just before the start of the Premier League. And then from that point on, we just flip and become a club who almost excel at making mistakes. And it's, it's, and we do it at the wrong, just the wrong time, just, just as football's changing beyond recognition and money's coming in, we decide to have like, I don't know, about six, seven, eight years of just being completely shit at everything. And, it, and then that, 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 that sense of being, and we'd always been an elite club, always been a massive club. And then we, just by doing that, that shift, everything changes and we fall right off the pace to the point now where, like, many of us feel, are we ever going to get back to what we were? And, you know, possibly not. And it's, it's, it's really sad that a club that was so, you know, so forward thinking, so excellent at so many things, just became just really shit at so yeah. much. I mean, for yourself, as someone sort of that lived through the 90s, I was hoping maybe in a bit you could sort of educate me on it. As I say, I was born towards the latter end and didn't experience any of it. But, Something that I remembered that I wanted to ask, just on, on the topic of the, the number nine book, I wanted to talk about the anomaly of Romelu Lukaku, really. Because for me, by far, I would say he's the best striker that I've seen in, in an Everton shirt. You know, uh, no one else really sort of springs to mind. I remember when Jelovic came in um, and had that sort of goal-scoring spree, but then sort of defenders sort of figured out how to man-mark him out the game and he was never quite the same again. But what I wanted to ask was, are you, in a sense, glad that Romelu Lukaku didn't receive that number nine shirt? You for the book? Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I don't think he would have been written about anyway because for me, no. as I said, I was, I was raised on the stories of the 60s and the 80s and my personal opinion. But I think to... To be considered a legend for this football club, you have to you have to lift silverware. You've got to win something. So in that sense, I wouldn't regard Romelu Lukaku as coming anywhere close to being, you know, written in the history books. But from yourself, obviously, just sort of his pity, because as you say in in the book, 
there's a there's almost a prototype for an Everton number nine, isn't there? Really, in terms of his stature and style of play, and he seems to tick all of those boxes. But from yeah. the personality perspective, I mean, I'm talking largely about the international breaks where he talked to the media. Are you glad in the sense that he didn't get that hollow chair? Yeah, I think I think the difference between him and lots of these players, apart from the the they were loved. I think I think we we sort of respected Lukaku for his football ability. I don't think he was particularly loved because of the way he was because of the way he talked about the club uh, on those breaks and and you know agitating for a move quite often. Whereas players like Ferguson and and Sharp, Ray, Lashford, they were properly loved by the fans, and I think that's the main difference. Even if he'd won something with Lukaku, I still don't think and and, he, and he'd worn that shirt. I still think it'd be hard to include him in the same company because his relationship with the fans was very different. Mm, and very much that. I mean, again, I, I hate to say it, but that sort of step and throw mentality, like you did see him come in after that season with West Brom and grow as a player, you you would have wished that his sort of personality would have been more in tune with that, in a sense. But um, moving on to something else, um, obviously I've graduated, well, not graduated yet, but I've finished uni now, my third year, waiting on graduating. I've basically studied football business and media, which has kind of primed me for a um, career in sports media. I've always been a, you know, a huge reader of football books, football autobiographies, magazines, of, you know, reading and writing is something that, that I've always done. And so to have the opportunity to talk with an author is something I'm, I'm really grateful for. Um, what started off you becoming an author and what sort of lit the flame for you to, for that to be a defining career for you? Uh, well, I've, I've been writing for about uh, just over 20 years since I, learned, I did like a master's in history. And I was trying to go into like academia, but it just, in the end, it just bored me so much. I thought, oh, I can't finish doing that. I enjoyed like the creative process and writing. So for years, I just kind of wrote freelance magazine stuff and marketing stuff. But I didn't like the, the grind of pitching and, you know, and getting rejected and that kind of stuff. I like the idea of just doing, uh, doing, the same thing each day, like a proper job, which is why kind of books appeal to me. But you know, my my, my main interest is obviously football. I, I've written a lot of football articles and done interviews, and if I'm going to do something every day, I'd rather it be football. So, um, I kind of about four or five years ago, I've noticed that there was like a a lot of um activity in the kind of the support activism part of the game, but not a lot. But there was nothing written about it. There's huge upheaval in um, like what it means to be a football supporter across the game. It was largely ignored. And you had like clubs like Wimbledon and FC United Manchester that are doing amazing things, but they were you know often on the periphery. So that's where the idea for my first book came, which is Punk Football. And I kind of once I'd done that, I realised just how enjoyable it was to really get kind of stuck into a subject. And from that point on, that's what I want to do all the time, really. Nice, nice. Um, as, as I say, it's it's something that really like through my sort of early childhood. Really, it's something some people have always said that you know that's something I can definitely see you going into in terms of like writing and that. Just given how much I consumed and I enjoyed football and on that first book or, or punk football and, and supporter activism, I know a few lads that play for um, 
FC United of Manchester, and yeah, it, it's really it, it is really interesting to see how they operate as a club, um, and how, and especially now during the pandemic, how they they struggle um, through having you know no commercial um, partnerships or links or what have you. My um, my dissertation was basically on sort of I suppose the the other side of that really focused on how football essentially has changed following the investments of broadcast media in post-92 and the sort of increase of foreign ownership and private ownership as a sort of consequence yeah. of that. So when you sort of look across the how football has changed over time, because I, most definitely I, I often think I would have loved to have been about in, say, the, you know, the 60s onwards where football is very much a, a working man sport. How have you sort of observed that change over time? especially if you're doing your, uh, your research on your book. Yeah, well, I think you've, you've got like, uh, I mean, the, the obvious thing you see, like the wages and ticket prices, the headline stuff that you kind of, everyone talks about that, you know, that money has changed the game and football is in well more, you know, more than used to and things become more corporate. I think uh, one of the kind of depressing aspects is that how um, kind, of, kind of top heavy it is, how the money, it's not a case that, that kind of, English, I mean, clearly, overall, English football is better off financially, but most of that money is is just skewered towards um, a really tiny elite. Mm. Which kind of it kind of mirrors what's happened in society. You've got this this kind of small number of uh, small band of clubs who are taking the majority of the wealth, and then when you go down uh, down the pyramid and you go down into junior football. It, you know, every club is is you know living hand to mouth, and they're they're basically on their ass. And you think it wouldn't, you know, like like with this pandemic, I'm sure a lot of clubs have found this so hard because there is no income. And so, you know, how they how they how do a club that survives, you know, week to week hand to mouth function when there's no money coming in? I think it's it's depressing that. Uh, I know it's, you can't have like a total sharing of, of income. That would never happen. But it's depressing just how much the elite hoard to themselves and how much they refuse to give to the pyramid below them. That really, it, you know, it creates the game. It's, mm. it, it's, it's the foundations of, of football. And they don't recognise you know, the contribution that these clubs make to English football. They just want to kind of hoard everything, that, everything themselves and get richer and richer. And it's, it's just a really kind of depressing state of affairs yeah that sort of commodification of as you say the sort of top high-end top-end football yeah. clubs i would say sort of evolving into brands was that one of your main sort of conclusions from writing your first book yeah i mean i've written one uh, this year too called uh, how to run a football club which sort of looks at um the pyramid it goes from junior football up to the very top and it's it, yeah it, it talks about that process how yeah you're right you've got at the top you've got these brands really they're not i'm, I'm not even sure you can call them clubs anymore mm. they, they sell like a they sell a football experience to the world and uh, they'll have more fans in different countries than, than they have kind of in their own city or kind of or area and um and yeah, and it's and you buy into you, you make like you buy into the Liverpool experience. You don't need it. Are, are you necessarily the same fan as would have been the case in the seventies? I don't think you are. You kind of you, you wear your your supporter affiliation lightly. You don't really. You kind of you go in there for the kind of the tourist experience of Anfield. 
it's not the same as going to Anfield in the 80s. It's just different. Football at the very top is not the same as football um, decades ago. Whereas if you go to maybe a League One or League Two club, then mm. that, 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 that kind of sense of continuity is still there. But at the very top, it's a completely different sport now. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I, I could echo that. I've got like connections and I've worked at several clubs in the in the EFL, like League Two, League One and that. And you can tell they're sort of dependence on match day income and yeah. that sort of that sense they are a real community hub and they always will be and sort of depend on that stream of supporters and the income that they provide. Um, but to, to to fast forward and something that I'm sort of all ears towards now really, Everton in the 90s, I know you've written that book, Highs, Lows and Back of Yoko's. Um, so as I said, I was raised basically off stories off you know both sides of my family really of um, you know John Moores in in the sixties the Mersey Millionaires just how successful that we were there and the beautiful football that we used to play and how once player in that side Howard Kendall's come in and led us to our most successful days in the eighties so the prospect or the sort of the thought of having to experience that 90s must have been so traumatic and I hold us to exceptionally high standards really I the fact that we're in the bottom half of the table um at the present moment it just does not sit well with me at all and I personally think it's unacceptable um and I suppose that for someone that was there and experienced the 90s that would add a real sense of perspective when you're sort of sizing up what you expect from the football club. Yeah, I think you're right. I think yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I think if if you've lived through the the glory years and you know what that feels like, and then you've you've got the mediocrity of of today, it's definitely hard hard to take. But I think I think the '90s did a real number on us as as, as fans. I don't I don't really think. Uh, well, I can speak personally. I don't think I've ever really got over it because it was such a. A dramatic fall from grace to go from being champions to relegation fodder in the space of six years. It really, and then it turned to have like what, maybe a decade where it was mostly shit. I mean, obviously we had the, the cup win, but most of the time we were always thinking, looking down rather than looking up. And um, I don't think I've ever really got over that, really. I think each season now, I, st- I still go into it hoping we don't get pulled into the bottom three at some point, rather than thinking, are we going for Europe? Mm. You know, and as soon as there's a, 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 a turn of form, it's like getting sucked down. I, like a lot of Blues, panic. I think outside Everton, people don't see us that way. They think we, we aren't going down. But I think a lot of, a lot of Evertonians, uh, because of what happened in that decade, they just they really kind of lose their minds as soon as things are going badly. I think we're not, we are, we're going down, we're fucked. And it's, um, I, I, I blame those 10 years because it was so, such a, a weird, traumatic fall from grace. It's, it doesn't often happen to elite clubs. Normally, they just stay elite clubs. We, you know, us, like maybe Leeds, one of those clubs, it just, it's, it's a horrible thing happened and it just it messes with your head a bit. I guess so. I, I, see, again, so that I hate the prospect of being grouped in with that sort of I mean, with all. I mean, obviously, being a football fan, it, 
um, the club that you support is is subjective and the sort of emotions that you attach to that are subjective. So I say this with no disrespect to Leeds or Aston Villa or any of those other clubs, but I hate this, the thought of being considered in that bracket of, uh, of clubs, really. I mean, as I said, I, when I was born in 98, I know Walter Smith was our manager, but my earliest recollections are of David Moyes. Um, uh, I've met David Moyes before, you know, I said to him, you know, thank you very much for pulling us out of the, yeah. the, uh, the mess that we were in in the 90s. But from sort of my childhood experiences, that sort of, yes, albeit punching above our weight, but being in contention for the Europa League, getting fourth that year, um, that very much sort of defines my experiences of Everton as a, um, as a child, really, and what I've come to expect growing older. Um, was something that I wanted to ask, again, something that I didn't experience. I did a little bit of reading on it last night and I was quite shocked at what I found, really. But Peter Johnson, as owner, what was that like? Mm. I was re- I read that he was a a, a match-going Liverpool fan, which I'm sure didn't go, go, didn't go down well at the time. <laughs> no, he was, I don't think he was ever liked. I think he came in, um, well, I think he was the wrong sort of owner. I think Everton, we sort of got like a, a football league owner just as the Premier League started. So so he didn't have, like, bottomless... I think you can forgive most things in an owner, even being a red shite, if he had bottomless amounts of money and he just splurged recklessly and did it Chelsea, but he didn't. He kind of came in and he splurged for a bit. And then he um, he just closed the checkbook when he didn't think things weren't going well, borrowed loads of money, God is in trouble and then fucked off. So mm. like he he, he he was just like he did he was just, he did everything wrong really. Just uh, you know aside from being a red, he was just a, he was a really shit owner as well. Uh, so like it was a uh, by the end of the Johnson era when you know we almost gone down against Coventry, uh, he'd flogged Ferguson without telling the manager. We were in hock for millions of pounds. We were buying players like Bakayoko. And uh, the club was just, you know, it gone from being mediocre to being a mess, mm. you know, and nobody wanted to buy us. And that, that was his legacy. He left a club that was so unappealing. It's a Premier League club that nobody wanted to buy. So it's, you know, to say that then when, you know, there were all sorts of different kinds of clubs, he, he left a really poisonous legacy. Is that why... For people like yourselves, players like Ferguson had such a, a lasting impact because, for after so, so you know, as you, as you just described there, uh, uh, a sort of serial mismanagement at a higher level of the club, and you get someone who play, you get someone who comes in there and Duncan Ferguson. Obviously, there's a you know, a long list and history of, of um, Scottish affiliates that have come through and represented Everton really, really well. But is that why Ferguson means so much to people like yourself who were there and experienced the 90s? Yeah, definitely. I think um, he was just what we needed because prior to him coming, not only had we been a bit, a bit of a laughing stock after what happened with the, the uh, Mike Walker experience, and uh, we were also quite like a small, we'd always been, we, we tended into quite a small team, but loads of small, tidy players. And uh, we were dismissed by the team. Then suddenly you get this 
massive Scott who's, you know, violent and really aggressive and really with his heart on his sleeve and he's scoring really important goals and he's helping us haul ourselves out from uh, the relegation zone and then we, we, we win a cup with him um, playing. For, for Evertonians back then, I mean, even though, like, you, you know Ferguson, he wasn't that good. He didn't score mm. that frequently. He was always bloody injured. He was always suspended. I mean, he had, you know, months in prison. Uh, you know, what we, we never got to see the play he could be. But despite all that, he was just what we needed. You know, there was nothing. It, it was it being so bad and suddenly throwback from from a, another age coming in. It's it's obvious why he's so loved. Would you? Um... Do you know, he came in as taker manager for that game against Chelsea, and I was, I was there at um, Old Trafford as well when, when he was caretaker at Old Trafford. Would you say that? Because I remember speaking to Clyde Tilsley, who sort of described that game as a sort of real throwback to to like the eighties. Would you sort of agree with that? Yeah, I think that that uh, the Chelsea game in particular that was like uh, it was. I mean, I think if Ferguson stayed in charge for much longer, I don't know how much more the players could take because they just ran and ran and ran. I mean, I think they were all picking up knocks, weren't they, as the weeks mm. went by because they were so, you know, knackered. But it was a proper, like, gutsy performance. And I think that was that was something that all the, the great Everton sides had. It wasn't... Obviously, they were great footballers. And if you if you watch back old matches of, like, the Kendall era, you know, they're a fantastic footballing team. But they they really gave a shit as well. They were putting loads of effort, and they weren't nasty. I think that was like one of the nicest things about the Kendall sides that they were really shitty as well to other teams. That like you know, there's there's a great um, bit in that um, Howard's Boy documentary when uh, I think Brian Marwood uh, injures Adrian Heath, and he's out a terrible injury. He's out for months, and so Everton players. Not only got him back in that game, but every time they faced Marwood in games afterwards, they also went for him because they were really together and and united and and really really aggressive. And that was, you know, that that Chelsea performance felt like that. It felt like a, a, it turned Goodison into like a place you wouldn't want to go. But I'm just not sure how long they could keep that up. Mm. And you can sort of you can sort of see that now through the. I mean, obviously, you know, pandemic and project restart aside, you can see the sort of the, the list of injuries that, yeah. that we're getting at the moment. Like, even sort of historically, though, reading reading for your book, it does seem like a almost a characteristic of the club to just be on that side of misfortune. Really, the, oh, yeah. the, the sort of the injury history of the likes of Dean uh, Hickson, as you say, like Ferguson, like. The, Again, it goes back to that phrase, ever and that, which has seemed to be yeah. prominent now, which I know a lot of fans don't like. But overall, assessing our history, would you say we are a lucky side or unlucky side? I think we're really unlucky. Mm. I think it's, I think the the kind of the one thing that that sticks out in my mind is to is to have two great sides uh, ruined by world wars. That's mm. I mean. I know, I know, the, I know there were worse things about the World War than Everton's misfortunes, but uh, to have those two ruined and then our greatest ever side sort of unpicked by uh, a European ban—no fault of our own. 
yeah. was caused by our neighbours. It's um, so we've lost really three sides to uh, wider misfortune, and there's no other club who can say that. So, yeah, there's there's always bits of kind of misfortune and players who have had injuries and all about, but fundamentally those three things always stick out. That you know you couldn't you couldn't write that. It's just it's just so so unfair, you know. know. And not just that, there are times when like you know. We could have been so much better. It's like you know, league challenges with, that just fell by the wayside because of this, because of that. You know, you look at Evans' history. We should have won way more league titles, way more FA Cups. The, seven, the cup. 70s seemed sort of reminiscent of that. We seemed yeah. to come close so much in the 70s. Yeah, I think there was one league challenge where if we, I think it was we lost twice to Carlisle, who went down. So if you'd beaten Carlisle, who everyone fucking did. We'd have won the league, but Everton, being Everton, managed to blow that. And it's just, there's the League Cup, and we have like, you know two replays, and still can't win it. And you know, there's so many more trophies we should have won, and so many more Everton sides who could have gone on to done to have done greater things. And it, a lot of it is just yeah, it's just bad luck. Mm. As I'd say, certainly in my lifetime, it, it's mad to think our only final is 2009, the FA Cup against Chelsea. Where you know we've come so close in so many other semi-finals and really should have seen it over the line in those other semi-finals. That yeah, as you say, we should have we should have won so much more than what we actually had. But what I wanted to say is that I, I think this, this sort of stuck out to me when you look at the nineties with Everton. Obviously, the revolution of English football comes in '92 with the influx of the broadcasting monies from from Sky and whatnot, and. As you say, it's, that seems to be the moment when we've just got our foot off the ball. And mm. in a moment, I think, this is, I think this is typical of not just football, I think this will go across any industry really, that in a moment of sort of revolutionary change, when Thompson is, you know, going to be never going to be the same again, there is always the chance and everybody always runs the risks of losing some of those traditional values that are really sort of valued. And I think that's really prominent today, really, with the source of, um, I don't know quite how to describe it, but whether that's down to recruitment or, you know, some of the past appointments managerially. But you've obviously written that book, the, was it The 50 Greatest Games? Yeah. What You've obviously sort of gone back to, to the early days there. What were the um, sort of things that emerged to you most, that sort of, the sort of values of the football club? I think they've always been a good community club, Everton. I think, um, yeah, I think that, that you know that, that's still the case now. Is that they're still very much invested in the local area. I think, um, as I said before, we were always well run, and we were always engaged with the community. It's only lately where that hasn't that hasn't been the case. I think, and I think I think you're right. There's a there's a sense lately of maybe a subtle shift in the kind of feeling around the club. And I think we're trying to make that transition from, but I think for too long we stayed, our mentality was still a football league club in the Premier League. I think that's how Everton were run. We still mm. had that kind of small mentality. We didn't think globally like Liverpool did. And I think we're, we're trying to make that transition over to like the, to join the elite. But the danger is, 
as you kind of mentioned, if you do, as you do that, there's always the risk that you completely abandon what you wear. Mm. So whilst Everton are great at the moment at the community stuff and all that's run well, you don't get the same sense from the team. It doesn't feel like an Everton team mm. uh, anymore. Where I think we, you know, even, even when we were shit in the 90s, it still felt like an Everton team, just a shit Everton team. I think under Moyes, that still felt that he still had that sense yeah. of the players caring what the fans think and, and being engaged and emotionally connected to the fans. Because you look at a lot of the players we've got now, which, like you said, it could just be recruitment, but it, you don't feel like they really give a shit. I mean, some of the, some of the, the strolling, lazy performances, and I know it's the end of the season, and I know it's a weird season, but. <laughs> It's been there before that as well. And there's lots of players they've brought in who just, you don't like them. You don't get the sense they care that you don't mm. like them. You're just getting the paycheck. And so I think managing that transition to have, a, 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 to be a, a massive elite brand, still connected locally, still cares in the community and still can produce teams who you really uh, engage with and kind of have emotional connection to. I think it's quite hard. Yeah, most definitely. Something that I, that I picked up on there when you sort of pointed to sort of, well, I hesitate to say mentality, but we were sort of operating as a football league club within the Premier League. Didn't Wasn't Philip Carter on the board of the, the football league prior to yeah. rebranding? Yeah. Do you think that was a, a sort of byproduct of that maybe? I think I think that that kind of shows you how how like how criminal our mismanagement was because we were the we were the one of the teams pushing for the Premier League. We had our chairman as kind of real uh, pushing force, and who should have seen what was coming, but everyone else did, or well, our peers did, and they sort of transitioned well. Mm. And yet Everton, despite having that sort of advantage over everyone else, just did nothing. Just stay mm. thought, we'll just keep doing what, what we've been doing. It's worked for 100 years, surely it'll work for 100 more. And it, it definitely didn't. And it's, um, we were, you know, it's taken probably with the arrival of Mishiri, it's probably taken that long to really start trying to, you know, think more commercially and try and get better deals in place. And it, it you're playing catch up now because everyone else who was around us at the time in the 80s, like Arsenal, United, uh, Liverpool. They just raced ahead mm. about twenty years ahead of us, and it's how do you catch up? How how do you catch up them after after all those decades of doing not much? That's strange to think that because I'm sure when I was doing revision for my dissertation, I'm positive Everton were amongst those that were represented with a meeting with Greg Dyke. I think at the time he was the chairman of ITV Sports and sort of this was the sort of seeds being sown for. Mm. Um, the birth of the Premier League and how um, it's going to have a sort of interdependent relationship with Sky and other broadcasters that Everton were still considered at that time yeah. amongst the, the elite. Um, yeah. So it, it, it is very disheartening. But onto sort of more positive pastures, really. As, as you say, historically, as I said to you, sort of initially, Reading the book really sort of cheered me up in a sense in that we were obviously former like sort of leaders in our field. There was sort of nobody else like us. And we were so far ahead, as I said, with the likes of 
John Moores, and I'm sure in one of the former Players Foundation interviews that I was watching, they said we were the, the first of the groups, the first of the teams to bring in like strength and conditioning work uh, and things like that. Um, when you were writing the book of our 50 greatest games, which of the games stick out for you as the most poignant? Um, I think with those sort of games, it tends to be if you were there, I think. So, like, my favourite game, it shouldn't be, really, but my favourite game is always the, um, the Wimbledon 3-2, kind of the escape from um, the Clutches of Death game because it's got everything in it, that game. I think, don't think that, you know, I've been there when Everton have won titles and that's fantastic. And I've been, I've seen us win, win cups and that's wonderful, but you don't have that same swing from um, abject despair to in like insane elation that I got in that space of an hour. I'd gone from kind of wanting to leave and just being distraught to like just losing my head by the end of it. I, you don't really get that. So, that's like my favorite game, but like it shouldn't be. The greatest game should be things like, you know, with, um, Bayern Munich or um, winning the league um, in 85 or the 66 Cup final. They're, they're like the moments um, you kind of you should be saying that are, are fantastic. And you were, but I think for a lot of, a lot of Evertonians uh, who've been born more recently, you kind of. Your greatest games aren't historically great games. Mm. That's, that's part of the problem of our modern our modern club. When you when you're looking at like like uh, when I was trying to pick one from like the Moyes era, I picked like um, you know finishing fourth was like a great moment. Mine is, I mean, my, it's a great moment. It is. I was going to say mine would be the Gosling derby. Really, when I talk when I pick my favorite game, then it's just the Gosling derby case closed I think that's just the context of that but as you rightly say it, it shouldn't be really should it it should be it should be but like you know derby wins in the 80s were like 10 a penny so like you, I, I, I cut out loads of games in the 80s because there are too many games in the 80s but when you get kind of post Walter Smith and you're looking back over the last what like 17 years 16 years the great moments like you know Things that used to be routine, like, you know, getting getting to a final or beating Liverpool, it's it's depressing that like you know <laughs> that it's, it's come to that. Really. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you think moving on to to the modern day now? I know, it's like, because I, I think I put a tweet out the other day after the um, after the one-one draw against Villa that. It seems like a, just an inherent personality trait of Evertonians to be negative and to be very sort of pessimistic. Uh, again, as you sort of described, I've got a feeling that might be a byproduct of those that have been there and experienced the 90s. But do you think that, for example, I think the, the example that football fans in general point to now when talking about Everton is that appointment of Carlo Ancelotti as manager. Do you think that is a, a step in the right direction or just just a stroke of luck that's swung our way for the change? I think we were lucky. I think he came, you know, when we were looking for a manager, he happened to be looking for a job. Uh, but it's nice that the, the club has shown ambition for the change because you could have 
gone out there and appointed Sean Dyche. He would have done a job, an alright job, but you wouldn't you wouldn't get to the next level. So it's nice that, that they're doing that. But again, they've done it in a typical Everton way that we've we get a new owner and we go and blow all the money and then we appoint the good manager and mm. say, well, there's not as much money. So like, yes, it's fantastic, but it wouldn't have been fantastic four years ago. Because I mean, imagine what he could have done and his reputation time. and his knowledge and that money. Right, so we wouldn't have bought Sandro or uh, Schneidlin and all this. He's kind of list. Yeah, this endless list of garbage that we've saddled the club with. That wouldn't have been the case, probably. We still would have bought by our players because every club does, but we wouldn't be looking at the team we have now and thinking, God, I mean, that's like, what, 400 million to produce that team? It's just, really, we've produced a team that is worse than the side that David Moyes left us with. We spent 400 million to do that, which is uh, such an uh, such an evident thing to do. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And I think this comes to, I would say, I mean, obviously the, the squad that David Moyes built up until the time just before he left for Manchester United, I don't know. It was a fantastic footballing team. I've got sorts of great memories of, you know, the likes of Pina and Morales bending them in from outside the box and playing some fantastic football as a as a sort of product of that. But that sort of that appointment of Roberto Martinez, I think it married the sort of defensively sound team of Moyes yeah. and that sort of th- free thinking, um, yeah. progressive side of, of Martinez, which did lay the seeds for so much promise and again I mean obviously for, for older people they'll have their sort of their issues that they want to pick with the club but for me that decision to let Ross Barkley, Romelu Lukaku John Stones and Gerard Delafeu all go within the sort of same space of time it's just sort of landed us, landed us in the, the situation that we are in today. We have got some Fantastic players, as we said. Like, um, it, it's been great to see Richarlison and Calvert Lewin sort of develop a, a relationship as the two up top, and you know they are sort of the leading the line for us. The best two players that we've got, Luca Dean, the fact that he's come in, taking the place of Leighton Baines almost seamlessly. Yeah. That was a huge, huge task to, to take the place of Leighton Baines, um, and the fact that he did it within that first season so sort of effortlessly was you know a credit to the club and their, their sort of recruitment. But as you say, it has been marred by the sort of mess everywhere else, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But again, this is such a hard question to answer. But what would you put the times what what time span would you put on us returning to that sort of elite bracket of clubs? I I, mean, I don't know if we can. I mean, again, that, that's probably just Evertonian pessimism. I just think, I think, in certainly in the short term, the, I, I, the best you could hope for, I think, would be sort of where maybe uh, Man U are now, where you're sort of, you're just outside the really good teams and you can maybe have a cup run. I think if in, in, if in the next three years we, we do that, that's fantastic. But I think more than anything, I think... I just want some um, stability and the sense that we're going somewhere. I'm, you know, I'm sick of it. Of, I'm really sick of, of waiting for the summer. 
Like mm. every season, it's like, God, let's get to the summer and we're going to clear the decks and build again. I'm tired of like just writing off months of the season and then the next year you're back, you know, same again. Things go wrong and you're in the bottom three and you're fighting out of it and it gets to like March, April, and you're thinking, God, let's just get to the summer and buy some new players. I want a season or a few seasons where like that doesn't happen. And you you end the season thinking we've genuinely improved, and I'm I'm excited for the summer because we're gonna get more players to get even better. Not God, look at this shower of shit. Let's just get rid of them and hopefully we get some new players. I'm just you know I want I want to feel like the club are going somewhere. And right now, you know you do because of who's in charge, but like there's still that sense that God, this is just you know. It's, it's just shit to watch at the yeah. moment. And it's there's so many players there, you're thinking, you know, I just don't want to see them play for the club again. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've got to be honest, right? When I look at this Premier League at the moment, oh, there are a few finer times to get your shit together than right now. I would say <laughs> right. if you've got a number of those once considered very elite clubs. So for me, when I was growing up, um, I think there seems to be a tendency of, of football fans and sports fans to sort of group uh, the top contenders into pairs. So, for, you know, for, for the 80s, it was us and Liverpool. Um, and then for, for me, growing up early, it was Chelsea and Man United. Now it's obviously City and Liverpool. But now we're in a, we're in a situation where Tottenham, Man United, Chelsea, all these top sides that should be sort of you know, they, they were the sort of set in stone top six are sort of fluctuating within yeah. the within the top half of the table. And you've got great examples. And, you know, Mihak goes off to Wolves, really, to be honest. I think they're one of the best examples of a project club that you can find with the sort of um, the recruitment that they've gone about and the sort of style of play that they've sort of implemented now. Because as you sort of alluded to there, I think as a football fan, that's all you're waiting for. I think you're waiting for that season where it clicks for your club yeah. in terms of a, you know, you, you're waiting for a sort of string of sound board decisions at a high level and then you want to see that as a result on the pitch in the terms of a, as a definitive style of play. I think we've most definitely seen that in Roberto Martinez, which I guess ultimately came to his pedal. But you're going to see, you know, you want to see a sound style of play that, lays the foundations for, as you say, uh, a decent cup run or maybe a, a European finish. But, as you say, it, it is a, a real, real hard one pre- to predict, given it being the, you know, the top flight of English football, it is generally hard to predict. But going forward, obviously, um, tonight, in it's Sheffield United. Um, Monday we're, we're recording this now. What time to kick off? Is it, is it another sort of tea time kick off? Six o'clock? Yeah, six. Yeah. yeah. Again, they're another of those sides that have crazily come up and, and Chris Wilder's hit the nail on the head there. You know, they're sound and in contention for yeah. the European places. It feels very, very wrong to be saying Everton are going into a game against Sheffield United as the underdogs. To me, that should not be the case, case closed. No. 
Well, what are you sort of? I don't like asking for score predictions. I think that's a bit of a, a cop out question, really. But what are you sort of? What do you envision for the game tonight? Did you see that interview with uh, the manager after their last game? Wilder. Yeah, you see it. Which one? He was really. I'm not sure if it was on, but he was really candid and really, really pissed off with his team. The the goalkeeper was the only one that he couldn't find fault in. Yeah, and so like it, you you kind of watch that and you're thinking, I really feel sorry for whoever's going to play that team next because he will have given them a proper bollocking. They're already got the motivated. They're a good team. They've got kind of a clear identity. They work hard for each other generally. Uh, they've beaten us. Uh, and um, they're playing an Everton team who couldn't care less, who are on the beach. I think you know, there are players there who know that they don't form part of the manager's plans over the next few years. So why would they bother? And you'll come up against you know, that former Sheffield United. I don't see Everton getting anything from the game at all. I don't think they'll get battered because it's still Sheffield United. Uh, but, like, I've got no confidence at all. Still watch it because, you know, it's Everton, but it's uh, you know, I know it's going to be an unpleasant experience uh, and I'll start, I'll end the game feeling shit. It's almost guaranteed, but what can you do? Yeah, it, it, for me, it very much feels like since the project we started, I... I don't know. I don't know if it's sort of a, a product of how this season's gone in general with, again, the sort of success over Stanley Park, but I've just lost my enthusiasm, really, towards football this season. Uh, as you say, you are sort of looking to the summer and thinking, right, what can we do within the sort of extended transfer window period now to develop a sort of team with a sound identity? Ah. I don't know, it's like who's the modern Evertonian, isn't it, really? But <laughs> so, um, I'd be interested to sort of look at winding up the, the podcast now to ask you. Uh, obviously, the book is on the number nine shirt, which has a, a really sort of rich and unique history. But for me, as I said, um, my granddad played for the club during the 50s, and he was a, he was a centre-half, he was number five. And growing up, um, so when I played, I was a number five, I was a a centre-half or a defensive midfielder. So I sort of had that sort of passed on to me, if you know what I mean. So that was, I've always sort of kept my eye on um, sort of historic defenders of the club, uh, many of which have been, have been captains. And my, I think my favourite Everton player of all time is Brian LeBone in that regard, just to think how he sort of conducted himself as captain. And when you, go, when you watch the Golden Vision, his interviews, they're, they're absolutely fantastic. They are what you want uh, an Everton captain to be. Um, if you were take, if you could take your pick of your bunch uh, of Everton captains, who would it be and why? Um, I think uh, Ratcliffe because he because of what that team did, and also he was just really good. You know, when you when you've kind of watched Everton over years and you've seen some of the shit that we've had playing in our defense in our de- defenses. Here and there, and you, you kind of you, you think back to a player. He was just so accomplished, so quick, so kind of um, intelligent, uh, and you've always you always felt confident. You know, maybe less so towards the end of his career, but that's inevitable with footballers. Mm. But certainly when he was in his pomp, he was um, 
Yeah, you just you just thought like nothing's going to get past him. The defense would be run properly, uh, and he was just a really good footballer. And it's um, you, you imagine having someone like him in our team now. Just you know, it'd be it'd be so wonderful when we've had like you know when you look at our some of our defenders who, who just have a look of blind panic on their faces at times, and you're thinking you could do with somebody with that level of confidence and that level of ability. And that sort of that and that that presence as well. It's just um, he was just a fantastic player. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just a, another one that that sprung to mind as well. Obviously, there we're talking about captains and Seamus Coleman's been getting quite a lot of media attention recently because I think uh, I think it it split straight down the middle uh, when he comes out with a sort of a rallying cry in the media saying you know this isn't good enough. Half of the fans think oh here we go again, and then half of the fans think you know good on him. That's what a what a captain should do. Uh, I think we're in danger now uh, of Seamus and Leighton Baines really being grouped into that the same sort of uh, cohort as the likes of Phil Jagielka and whatnot of great players not to have won anything for the club. Who would you consider the best Everton player to have not won a trophy in the in the time of the club? Oh, it's a good question. Huh? Um, well, I'd say Baines. I think Baines is, is one of our greatest ever players. I think he'd get into most Everton teams, even even some of the ones in the sixties and and eighties. He was a fantastic footballer. I I think the best left back in this country over the last you know, but certainly during his, his his Everton career, he's been fantastic, and he could have gone he elsewhere. Could, he could have he could have went to to Man United and won leagues yeah, and championships. He could have gone there and he stayed loyal. And uh, he, yeah, he's one of those players who you think deserves a trophy, but he's um, he'll have to make do with our kind of our love instead, which is not as good as a trophy probably. But he's um, he's certainly he's you know he's one of those players who all the ups and downs you've gone through. He's remained. He's always been held in high regard. He's one of those players who you think you you sense gets Everton as well. I think that matters too. You, you get the feeling that he understands what it is to be an Evertonian. Uh, but unfortunately, I think those like him and Coleman are sort of like a I feel like a dying breed at the club, where they're the players who um, the kind of the hang up from the Moyes era, and you you had that that affinity with the crowd and. Um, you can't say that to the same degree with the awful lot of the modern players. No, 100%. Fingers crossed he, he does sign the, the extension and just touch wood that this group of players go on and achieve something within a cup competition for his sake. Or um, I don't know if he is wanting to go into coaching because he seems like a, a cool guy with a lot of different things on the agenda. But if he is to come into coaching, I'd love for him to, to win something. Uh, on the coaching staff as well uh, Jim it's been a, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast um, you're more than welcome to come on anytime I'm going to leave a link to the book the, uh, the Amazon link in the description but yeah. if you've got anything else that you want to plug I know you said you've got another book out there so just to, to let the people know oh yeah there's another one coming out in two weeks I think it is uh, How to Run a Football Club which is uh, as I said before it's a look it's the entire game from Kids kicking the first ball right up to the Premier League, just to get a kind of a taste of uh, kind of how shit modern football is and how it's um, how unfair it is. So while we're all kind of 
you join our Premier League side, you forget there's so much that is just on its arse. So it's, you know, but it's, it, it's not all downbeat as well. Well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely be looking at getting that when it, when it comes out. Uh, and as I say again, Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast uh, and you're welcome anytime. No worries for having me. Great thing.